0: Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. If you remember from our last podcast, we are going through the book of Titus, and we're actually going through it at the same time that I'm going through with my translation team. So as my team in West Africa is drafting Titus, I thought it might be interesting to give you a glimpse into the kind of issues that we consider when we're drafting a book for the first time. These issues are a little bit different than the way you think about a text when you're studying it for devotions or to apply it to your life, so I thought you might be interested in learning a little bit about what these issues are. So last podcast, we talked about a translation principle, and that is understanding the text before translating, and then we looked at the background of Titus, and that kind of gives that foundation for understanding the text. So today, we're going to look actually at Titus. We're going to start Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's the introduction to the letter. But before we start, I want to give you another translation principle. So this translation principle is the three qualities of a good translation. So the three qualities of a good translation are that it is clear, it is accurate, and it is natural. So clear means that it makes sense in the language that you're translating into. Accurate means that it is faithful or it accurately reflects the meaning of the original language. And then natural means that it sounds natural, it sounds normal in the language it's translated into. It doesn't sound stilted or like a translation, but rather it sounds like it was written in that language. So sometimes clear and natural can feel a little bit at odds with accurate. Sometimes a translation that is really faithful or really accurate is hard to understand. So we have to actually make a distinction when we're translating between things that are confusing because the grammar doesn't make sense, or things that are confusing because there are things as Christians that we have to learn as we grow in Christ. And that's really one of the major differences between studying a text to translate and studying a text to apply it to your life. When you study a text to apply it to your life, you have to dive into those issues. When you come upon a difficult passage, you want to study the different interpretations, look at the biblical support for different positions, and then ultimately you have to make a choice about what you believe the passage means. But when you study for translation, when there are those theological issues that are difficult to understand, of course you want to know what the options are. But you actually don't want to put an interpretation into the text. You have to let the text speak for itself. So that's where it needs to be faithful to the original text. It needs to be accurate to the original text without putting in that interpretation. So it should be clear and it should be natural in that the words and the structures make sense, But that doesn't mean that all the theological principles that are in the Bible have to make sense. So we'll actually see an example of this in today's text so you'll be able to see what I mean. So there's a lot of things to consider when drafting. You have to consider the big picture that you're trying to communicate along with the individual words and small pieces and how they fit together. You have to think about the culture of the original text. What culture is this coming out of? Things that are implied in the text that come from that culture. But then you also have to keep in mind the culture of the receptor language. That's the language you're translating into. How are these concepts going to come across based on this culture? And how can you make concepts clear in that second language? So let's go through Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I'll point out how some of these issues play out. I am going to read out of the English Standard Version. This version is a little bit more word for word, so that will give us a good foundation for what the Greek is saying. Actually, when you translate, it's a really good idea to look at multiple different versions so you can see how different people have expressed these different things in the passage. So Titus 1, 1 through 4 says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So you can see that there are lots of different translation issues right here in these first four verses, and the first one is when we look at this passage as a whole. As a whole, these verses are the introduction to a letter. So the author, Paul, introduces himself and his ministry. And this is pretty typical, Paul, that he puts a little mini gospel right in there, right in the introduction. But then following that, he says who the recipient of the letter is, and he gives a benediction or a greeting. So right away, we see a difference between the original culture and the receptor culture. And we'll say the receptor culture is America, American English. So in English, how we introduce letters is quite a bit different. We usually say something like, dear so-and-so, then we introduce ourselves, you can say like, my name is blah, 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 and then give a greeting. And then we end the letter by saying something like, sincerely, or love, or thanks, and then we give the name of the author. So this is a cultural difference, the way that we structure letters, but we are going to stick with the original structure. It is clear what is going on. It's clear that it's a letter, even though it's not an American style letter. And so we do want to be faithful, otherwise we'd have to rearrange all the verses and that is too much rearranging. So we can make it clear and we can make the sentence structure natural, even if it's not a typical letter style in English. All right, so let's go to verse one. Verse one says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. All right, we immediately have a key word in this verse that takes some cultural consideration, and that is the word doulos in Greek. You probably know this word as servant or maybe as slave. It literally means slave, but you can see in English it's been translated servant, and that's because we need to think about cultural connotations as we translate. So in Greek culture, there were different types of slaves, and the connotation that Paul was going for in this passage is considering himself, I mean he calls himself a slave, as someone who's completely bound to another person. That's what a slave was, completely bound to another person. But the connotation was not a relationship of fear or cruelty. Slavery didn't necessarily mean fear or cruelty in Greek culture. But slavery in the United States really does have that connotation. Slavery in most cases was cruel and harsh. And so a lot of Bible translators choose to use the word servant instead because they want that idea of devotion to a master. But they want to avoid this inhumane idea of slavery that we get in English. So when translating, a translator has to decide. You don't want to use servant if that implies that there's not much relationship, that the servant is not bound in any way to the master, but you don't want to imply cruelty either. So that translator has to find a word that hits a middle ground. And in English, often that is servant. So that's our first translation issue, something to think about. But verse one, we immediately have another translation issue. And that is with the phrase, God's elect. All right, now here is this type of issue that we talked about earlier. It's a theological issue that is hard to understand and has different interpretations. But as a translator, you have to stay faithful to the text. And you have to allow people to make theological decisions on their own. So the Greek word for elect literally does mean those who are chosen or selected. So little theology here on the Calvinistic side of theology. Theologians say that this means that God chose certain people to be saved based on no merit of their own. But on the other side, we have Arminian theology. And these theologians say that God did choose people, but it's really based more on who God knew would have faith. So they are like select people. But it's as much man's choice of coming to faith as it is God's choice. But as a Bible translator, you can't say, well, I'm Calvinist, so I'm going to translate it to say, these people are the ones that God alone chose. Or you can't say, well, I'm an Arminian, so I'm going to translate it by saying, these are people who are select people of God, but not people that God specifically chose for salvation you can't put those things into the text you have to stay faithful to the text and so you have to say God's elect or chosen ones of God something like that those translations are general and they leave it open to interpretation they let the reader of the text study theology themselves and come to conclusions with of course the help of the Holy Spirit and as a translator you leave it general. Leave it for the Holy Spirit to speak to people. Okay, so we have two big issues right away in verse one. And of course, that is Paul for you. His writing is always packed with theology. But let's move on to verse two. And verse two says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Okay, so we have two issues here in verse two also. And the first issue is an issue of connection. How is the first phrase here in verse two, in hope of eternal life, how is that connected to the previous verse? So we have a preposition, that's the word in, and it also is a preposition in Greek, and but it can have a lot of different meanings. So in English, we can also use a preposition and say in hope and make it pretty general and the reader has to decide how the connection is made. But that doesn't work in every language. Sometimes you have to show the connection. So when Paul says he's working for the faith of the elect and for the knowledge of the truth, the question is, does the hope of eternal life come out of that? The faith, their faith and their knowledge of the truth leads to hope for eternal life. Or does the hope of eternal life form the foundation for faith and knowledge of the truth? Faith and knowledge of the truth is based on their hope for eternal life. So again, as a translator, you really actually want to try to be general, not make this decision, let the reader learn and make the decision themselves. But if you have to make a choice because of the language structure, Thankfully, there are translation aids that can give you an idea of which choice to make. And in this case, many translation aids suggest going with the first choice. Faith and knowledge of the truth lead to hope for eternal life. And they choose that specific connection because it makes more sense in the context. So to give you an example, the contemporary English version translates this section as I encourage God's own people to have more faith and to understand the truth about religion. Then they will have the hope of eternal life that God promised long ago. So just an example of one that of a translation that hasn't left it general. Okay, but the end of that little section that I read from the Contemporary English version leads us right into the next translation question. And that is the phrase that God promised long ago. And in ESV that we read at first, it says before the ages began. And actually I looked up a bunch of different translations. I looked at seven different translations and they had seven different phrases here. So all these, this is a difficult phrase. I'll let you look them up on your own various versions. But this little phrase before the, the ages began, it's, it's an example of a difficult phrase but a phrase that actually can be changed a little bit to make sense in the culture. The original Greek says, before time eternal, and the underlying meaning, if you study the phrase, the underlying meaning is really that it's before the world began. I guess we could say in eternity past. So all the different translators, different translation teams for different English versions, have chosen different ways to communicate this idea, and all really come up with acceptable translations. They're using different words, but they really are communicating that same underlying idea. All right, let's move on to verse 3. Verse 3 says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Okay, so in verse 3 there's a lot of little phrases here, but actually if you pick them apart, they do actually make sense. At the proper time. Okay, that makes sense. That's, you know, when God wanted it to happen, manifested in his word. So through through his word or through the gospel, he made known this the promise in verse 2. Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. So that means that God entrusted Paul with this message. By the command of God our Savior, again, it was done by God. So all of those things make sense. You would, of course, you want to study the meanings of keywords and phrases just to get that underlying meaning, but it's not really hard to understand here. So let's go on to verse 4. Verse 4 says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. All right, so here is the final where he actually says who the letter is to and gives his benediction. There's an interesting cultural issue right at the beginning, and that is the word son. Uh, Paul says to Titus, my true child. Okay, ESV says child. Other versions say son. My true child and a common faith. So you do want to make sure that it's clear in the cultural context that Paul considers Titus a son, because of their faith. But Titus was not his biological son. So when Paul says true son or true child, by true he doesn't mean biological. He's really actually kind of making a statement about how these faith connections are are more important to Paul than biological connections. So sometimes translators will say something like you are like a son to me because of our common faith because they want to make it clear he's not actually his son but he just considers Titus a son because of their faith. All right, that brings us to the end, to the final benediction. Paul finishes the greeting by saying grace and peace to you. Grace and peace are key words, but hopefully they're words that the team has already considered by this point. So whatever words they've chosen to translate grace and peace, they would put in here. Grace and peace are typical Greco-Roman greetings. And Paul, of course, gives them a Christian twist by adding at the end from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And that brings us to the end of the passage. So just a little look at a few of the translation issues in this passage. I hope you found these issues interesting and that you can see some of the differences between studying a passage for devotional reasons and studying a passage to translate it. So we will continue on next time looking at the next section of Titus, looking at a bit more of the translation issues. So I hope that you will join us again next time for Building a Bridge to God's Word.